He didn't like riding the bus home from school, but he didn't really have a choice. At the beginning of his third grade year, his mother had gone back to work part-time, and he was old enough, she told him, to ride the bus home and let himself into the house and fix himself a snack and start his homework. It didn't help that he had the meanest bus driver in the whole world, nor did it help that she threatened him daily that she would leave him if he didn't hurry up and get to the bus line on time. He was a good kid, perhaps even dutiful, and as soon as the second bell rang, the bell for the bus riders, he made a beeline from the classroom outside to where the students gathered waiting for the bus. He never even stopped long enough to say goodbye to a friend. So worried was he that he wouldn't make it on time. And despite always hurrying, he always seemed to get there at the last possible minute. Several times he would arrive after the driver had shut the door and even begun to pull away, only stopping because he screamed and waved her down. He asked his teacher if he could leave earlier, leave when the first bell for the car riders rang. But there was no reason why a third grader couldn't make it from the classroom to the bus line in time, so she politely refused his request. He pleaded with his mother, explaining how worried he was about the situation, but what she heard was a son who missed being picked up after school by his mother, missed spending the afternoons with her, and so she gently but clearly reminded him why it was so important that he rode the bus. He knew she was right. His father's hours had been cut at work. His mother's income was an important part of what was keeping their family afloat. And so he told her he understood and that he'd try his best. A few days later, however, his best wasn't good enough. He was racing through the hallway when he heard his name called by a teacher's voice, making him stop and come and explain why he was running inside. He told her he was just trying to make it to the bus on time. She believed him, but told him he had to walk the rest of the way. Looking over his shoulder to see if indeed she was watching, and she was, he walked as quickly as he could outside, but by the time he got there, it was too late. His bus, bus 81-7, was pulling out of the school driveway and turning onto the main road. He just stood there, stunned, bewildered, and with a sense of dread creeping into his heart. After a few moments, he turned and walked back into the school and made his way to the office where he explained to the school secretary what had happened, though his voice was a barely audible whisper. She said something to him about sitting and waiting, but he didn't hear what she said because his mind was still stuck in that place of fear and panic. He waited for what felt like hours and as the school emptied out, first the students, then the teachers, and then most of the administrators, he realized he was in big trouble. When the principal came out of her office and scolded him for missing the bus, reminding him yet again it was his responsibility to get there on time, he nodded, 
apologetically trying his best to keep that well of emotion from breaking free. All he could think about was how important that job was to his mother, how there was no way she could take off of work to come and pick him up in the afternoon, how critical it was for his whole family that he did his job, that he caught the bus and made it home on his own. Later, when the office door opened and his mother walked in, that flood of emotions broke loose. He sobbed. I'm sorry, he said. I'm so sorry. She wrapped her arms around him and patted him on the back, consoling him. And when he caught his breath, he said to his mother, I didn't know that you would come and get me. I didn't know how I was going to make it home. Well, I wasn't going to leave you here, silly, she said with a generous chuckle. I was always going to come and get you. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not fear, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. The miracle that is this night is not that the Savior turned up 2,000 years ago when the heir of David arrived in Palestine. The miracle of this night is that God would come to each one of us in a gesture as familiar as a birth and as nearby as a close field. Our Savior is it a superhero who shows up and does battle with evil, who, whose accolades are recounted in international headlines? No, our Savior comes with all the power of an infant held in his mother's arms. Our redemption is not found in a legendary victory or some supernatural event that captures the attention of the multitudes. Instead, it's something ordinary, something easily overlooked, something as plain and familiar as a baby. What we celebrate this night is that God would come to each one of us and bring God's saving love to us in a way that is both as personal and as powerful as any experience we've ever had. It didn't have to be that way, of course. God didn't need to be born in a stable, didn't need to be placed in a lowly feeding trough by a teenage mother. God didn't need to share news of this birth with, of all people, the shepherds, those lowly characters who, even if they had good news to share, no one would really want to hear it from them. No, God could have been born in a palace. God could have shared news of that birth on an ornate golden easel 
distributing official photographs through authorized media channels. God didn't even need to be born at all. God could have just come with power and might and set up God's throne on the earth, demanding that all people would give God their allegiance. News of that decree would trickle down to us through those official channels, through emperors and governors, through priests and church officials. But then it wouldn't be our news, would it? It wouldn't be our salvation. God can't wrap God's arms around us in a royal decree or a display of power. That's why the news of this night is so important that God's salvation would come to the world in a tiny baby. This night, the angels of heaven come to a nearby field, maybe, maybe just a little ways down Highway 112, a short drive from the hospital, where there on the hillside, the multitude of the heavenly host fills the sky with the glory of God, the angels singing the good news of God's love and favor for all people. Salvation isn't merely the birth of a hero who will grow up and do great things. It is the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. In the incarnation, God takes our nature upon God's self, changing a moment of history into the moment of history that changes everything because for each of us now, salvation has come near. We are, in the incarnation, embraced by God, filled by God's love. All the brokenness, the failures, the struggle, the losses that we carry, they are wrapped up in God's saving and generous perfection. In the birth of baby Jesus, that brokenness is redeemed. In the infant Christ, even our imperfections themselves become holy. The Savior who comes this night is as near to us as the nature of God that dwells within each of us. That salvation is as real and as personal as a loving parent's embrace and yet as powerful and wondrous as the almighty power of God. Here again, the good news of this night Hear the song that the angels sing of the Savior's birth. Draw near and behold God who comes to save us, to heal us by being born within us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.